This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Morning, everybody. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Mind if I take my mask off? Please. Yeah, so glad to have this chance to have the final word before we go <laughs> <laughs> to I hope it makes sense. So. Is anybody here new today? Hey, welcome. Is there just one over there, or is there more people? So I didn't announce my talk ahead of time, but I want to talk. About, I want to explore that little instruction that you may have heard when you first learned to do zazen. You may have heard your teacher or someone might say have said to you, "You can't do it wrong." Does everybody believe that? <laughs> does everybody? Is there anybody thinks they're doing it right? Sometimes. Sometimes, right? So when 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 do you think you're doing it right? Uh, gee, maybe once or twice a year. <laughs> do you think you're doing it right when you feel good? <laughs> Not necessarily. Well, I wanted to explore that and see, see if that's really true. Talk about if that's really true. So, as we all know, Buddhism is a is a philosophy that has transformation as a very important part of it. It's one of the very few philosophies that does have transformation as an important part of it. And Buddhism, unlike most all other philosophies, which are based on sort of the wonder of life and why is there life and why are we here and trying to explain, you know, this whole strange situation that we find ourselves in, Buddhism is uh, based on suffering and with a way to, and posits a way to get free from suffering. So that's the transformation. Transformation is an embodied process. It's a form of ripening. You can't think yourself to it. That's a quote from Zenki Dillow in his wonderful book called The Path of Aliveness. So I like that a lot. Transformation is an embodied process. It's a form of ripening. I really like that, the sound of that, ripening. You can't think yourself to it. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about embodiment. What, um, you know, who knows what embodiment is? I mean, would, would anybody want to say what they know about embodiment? Being in tune with the body. What? Being in tune with the body, like being present with your body? Yeah, yeah, that's part of it, yeah. Uh, yeah, me. You can say that, you know, I... If you're talking about a, a concept or or an idea or an abstraction or something, and then if it's if there is some sort of physical representation of it, that physical representation can say, be said to embody what yes. you're talking about. Yes, yes, that's that's what I was looking for. Everybody hear that? So embodiment is using the body to express something maybe otherwise maybe unexpressible in words or whatever. So um, our practice has, 
you know, a lot of embodiment going on here, so our ceremonies and all that. And we have a lot of things we do that are embodying of uh, things like uh, chanting. Chanting is a sort of an aural embodiment where there's all this sound created and we jump in with our voice, but our voice is kind of just becomes a part of the big sound, you know. We're not, we're, we're just, uh, we're all... We're all one voice, and we, we lose our own voice in the in the big in the big picture. And then we got frustrations, and frustrations are sort of dropping away. I mean, you know, there's a person standing here, and suddenly they're on the floor. You know, they they've dropped away. I I always think of dropping body and mind when during uh, frustration. So uh, we give up our give up our upright self and and throw our body to the ground. And then. Um, uh, the one I just love uh, that means more to me than anything is the gasho bow. You know, the gasho bow is this enactment of this uh, humility and uh, gratitude, respect. I mean, your 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 body is actually uh, demonstrating that. And I know that when I was new to this practice, when I was new to this practice, I was new to everything in the spiritual world. I, and I was new to everything that was Asian. And uh, I didn't... Uh, I, I can't remember what bowing was like for me at first. I think I took right to it. But the act of bowing was uh, a body thing, strictly. You know, I, I was told I was supposed to bow various times, and I did. Um, there probably wasn't much going on up here. Uh, I'm sure there's times I bowed to somebody I, and I had thoughts about them that maybe weren't very kind. They're like, I don't really like this person, but I'm supposed to bow, so I will. You know? um, and, uh, but, you know, it didn't take very long for the mind to kind of learn to be with the body. And I, it, it was a wonderful. I just always treasured that training of... Um, just you know how how the mind learns from the body to to feel all those things that you're actually expressing. So that's some of our embodiment practices. But our most important embodiment practice is the practice of zazen itself. Because you know, look at the posture of zazen. We're sitting with our legs the way we do. And so we're sitting on this wide base, very stable base, in this kind of shape like this. You know, kind of like the Buddha. We're sitting like the Buddha. Uh, we've got this mudra going, you know, with this placement near the, the hara, near the center of gravity. And we've got this, you know, this bigger mudra going on here, of, you know, this part of our body. So there's this openness in, in the front of us. But the most important part about sitting like the Buddha is that we're still and we're silent. So we're sitting, embodying uh, a Buddha. And that's pretty much the basis of practice, is sitting still and silent. Even if we have to sit in a chair for various reasons, we're still still and silent, like the Buddha. So uh, you can kind of see, I guess, where I'm going with this, I suppose. I wanted to talk just a little bit about my background and my introduction to this practice. I already mentioned that, you know, I didn't really know anything. Zen kind of came up and hit me from behind. I didn't really uh, 
know what it was. I didn't know what meditation was. Like I said, I didn't know anything about any kind of Asian practices. I'd never done yoga. But I kind of happened upon this practice through a friend. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what the Four Noble Truths was. And I started going out because my friend practiced with a Japanese teacher in California, Suzaki Roshi. I started practicing out there with him. And I consider uh, when I, my, my practice started was the first time I went to a, sh- a, shishin, a shishin out there. So I had this long distance practice. And like I said, I didn't know anything. I went out there and I sat in silence with people for seven days, people who, for the most part, I didn't know. I gradually got to know some of them. And then I came home. And that was my practice for quite a long time, most of the 90s, actually. And the reason I'm mentioning all this is that, like I said, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't even want to be a Buddhist. I just wanted to meditate. But uh, that didn't last very long. I got on that train and wanted to be like everybody else I was sitting with. So I didn't know, and I didn't have good posture. I didn't know anything about the right way to sit. And my teacher was not the kind of person that, that helped you out with those basic things. You know, I mean, He ran a monastery, and of course if you were at the monastery, uh, I'm sure you learned many things, but I, wasn't, I was an outsider, and so I just, I just went. So um, I always thought I was doing everything wrong, and also I was doing koan practice, uh, because that was what uh, was done there. And I, I had no idea how to do koan practice, and uh, <laughs> I did it for quite a long time with him, but I never, I, I never felt like I had any idea what I was doing. I felt like everybody else knew what they were doing, but, but I didn't. But I kept doing this, and the reason I kept doing this was because I felt transformation happening. Uh, and it seemed to happen fairly fast. When I, before I started practicing, I was, uh, I was a very, very insecure person. And uh, because of that, I was a, a compulsive gossiper. I put people down a lot because it made me feel better about myself. I was also... Um, um, Oh, I was always jealous. I was always jealous. I was always jealous of anybody that was, you know, that had their life together or could do something really well. And so I'd always been a very jealous person. My mother was a very jealous person. And I mention her because, I don't know, in the early 90s, 93, maybe 94, my mother and I were watching the Olympics together. And I can't remember that little girl's name that was this, the amazing gymnast that was Russian that was so great and kind of started off this whole thing with famous gymnast young girls. Anyway, she was performing in the Olympics. And, um, and I was just blown away, you know, by this performance. I mean, it's like she lost herself. She was just, you know, it was just the most beautiful thing. And I, and I stated something, uh, how much awe I was over this. And my mother said, well, aren't you jealous? And I, I said, my God, I didn't have a feeling of jealousy at all. I mean, it, it never occurred to me to be jealous. And that was one of the big indicators of how much this practice had done for me, you know, that had really changed that, that um, changed me that much, that I was able to enjoy somebody else's um, um, activity and the, beauty, and the beauty of it. And it was just huge. And so... 
you know, I guess that's why I'm talking about this because I didn't know anything. I didn't do it right. I didn't. I couldn't. I didn't know how to work on a cone. Half the time, I sat in front of my teacher in total silence because I didn't know what to say. Yeah, I remember uh, having to do with koans. At the end of every session, there was always this ceremony called. Uh, what was that called? Shosan. What? Shosan. Shosan. Yeah, Shosan. Shosan. Yeah. The, it was always announced that you were. It was Soshan was a. You know, in Rinzai, they, everybody goes to see the teacher in certain periods in the day. Like there was three periods in the day where you were. Everybody's going to see the teacher, and um, Walter knows this because he used to practice out there also. And and so the Soshan period was a period where everybody went to see the teacher. But it was announced that you only went to see the teacher if you had uh, an answer for your koan. So I never went. <laughs> everybody else went. So I, thought, so I thought, everybody else has an answer for their koan, but me. <laughs> I found out later that everybody went anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I, I took it all very seriously. Anyway, um, so that's why I'm talking about this, because I felt like I didn't know anything, and I didn't know what I was doing, and yet... And yet, all these things were happening in my life. I mean, it was like, it was transformation. And so uh, that's why I uh, do believe that you can't do it wrong. Because if anybody was doing it wrong, it was me, you know. I finally did start practicing yoga in the middle of the 90s, and that improved my posture a whole lot, which was a big help. Mostly what I did was sit there and try to transcend pain because you know, those days were long out there. I mean, I don't know, we started at 3.30 or 4 in the morning and went until 9, and we had three breaks a day, 25 minutes after each meal. And so, um, you know, there was a, a certain amount of pain, and I do believe that physical pain is one of the most powerful teachers there is because I spent most of my time trying to figure out ways to transcend it. And... That was what I did. That was my practice, was getting past this pain. And um, sometimes I, I would do really stupid stuff, like uh, I, I count. I said, all right, I'm going to count to I'm going to count my breaths to 60. And by 60, the period's going to be over, you know. It was my way of feeling like I was in control, you know. If I, if I could demand that it would be over by and I get to 60, it wouldn't be over. I said, all right, I'm going to do 10 more. And, you know, I do stuff like that. And I mean... It was uh, really kind of funny, but that's mostly what I did. When I wasn't, when I wasn't doing that, I was uh, just um, usually obsessed with, with, feeling, with feeling good. That was what I did most of the time, was trying to feel good and not feel pain. And that was one thing about that place that I think really I'm very grateful for is it did not tolerate non-stillness. You had to be still. And if you weren't still, you actually got asked to leave and go sit in the second zendo. And nobody wants to sit in the second zendo. <laughs> <laughs> there were chairs in the second zendo. And there were people in there that were coughing. And were, you know, and one night this woman started crying and she couldn't stop crying. She got sent to the second zendo. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you didn't want that. So I, I learned very quickly. What? Oh. I said, where's our second 
But so I learned very quickly to sit really still. I don't know if I just was a natural still sitter or if I just learned it because of peer pressure and because I didn't want to go to the second end. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm in awe of here though because I think people here sit very still too, and yet we didn't have don't have that kind of discipline at all. And um, I I think that says something. That but for me that really worked and it was it was helpful. Um. So I'm making this big point about still sitting, about how important still sitting is to this practice. But so I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, I don't sit so still. Well, am, am I doing that wrong? Am I not sitting still? That seems like that'd be something you could say is, is you're doing wrong. Um, but you know, that's one thing about this practice. Um, um, it's not so much where you are, but it's with, but the direction you're pointed. And if you are doing this practice wholeheartedly and you're having trouble with sitting still or maybe you're having trouble with a great fear of pain and, you know, uh, if you're having those kind of troubles, the very fact that you're sticking with it, you are learning to sit still. And maybe a whole lifetime of learning, but you are learning to sit still. Therefore, you are not doing anything wrong. You are learning to sit still. Um, and don't give up. In fact, sometimes in learning to sit still, you're actually learning more than people that don't have to work at it, people that can just do it and don't have to make that much effort. You know, Suzuki's Roshi's story about the four horses, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit later, you know, the, the good horse and the, and the bad horse. So being on the path is, is the goal in this practice, just being on the path. There is, since it's not a goal-oriented practice, we just get on the path and we do what we need to do to, to keep doing it, and we transform. Um, I will say this, that for people that have trouble sitting still, it probably is best to sit here in the sendo because Sitting still in this room with a whole room full of people that are sitting still and silent is a really powerful uh, framework for you if you have trouble. And I'm sure that you already know that. And uh, in fact, I learned something at Tassahara that I was a little surprised at that there are some teachers, and uh, apparently Reb Anderson is one, who actually oppose sitting alone. Do you know anything about that? Wasn't wasn't he your teacher's teacher? He's yeah, it's Galen uh, Godwin's teacher. I hadn't heard that about him, but it doesn't surprise me mm. that because uh, we don't sit just for ourselves. We we sit for all for the benefit of all beings. So I imagine that's where that comes from. Mm -hmm. That was where it came up actually, the benefit of all beings. So. But it can be a tremendous benefit to ourselves too, especially if we have trouble in the area of sitting still. Mm. So, um, why why can't you do anything wrong? What are some What are some reasons? I wrote I wrote some things down, some ideas about why why you can't do anything wrong in this practice, and I was reminded of um, Suzuki's uh, Roshi's response. Uh, to a famous response that he had to uh, Blanche Hartman, who was the founder of this temple, back when she was young and a new student. And uh, 
she went in for Dokasan with Suzuki Roshi, and she was very proud because she said, I spent the last 35-minute period counting my breath, and I counted every single breath. <laughs> and he said, and he did not look at her with great love and approving. He said, don't you know you don't do Zazen? Zazen does Zazen. So, um, you know, so you just put your body, you just put your body down there, you just sit down, and you're silent, and you encourage your body to sit still, and you just let the practice go to work on you. So, it's not about you. So, you can relax. You can't do it wrong because you're not doing it. <laughs> and also, it's a practice of doing nothing. This is a practice of doing nothing. So if you're doing nothing, how can you do anything wrong? <clears throat> Unless you're doing something, but you can't. You're just sitting there. You're not doing anything. How can you do anything wrong? If you do math wrong, you get the wrong answer. If you do surgery wrong, you could kill somebody. If you do politics wrong, you lose the election. Or maybe you win the election, but <laughs> hurt a whole lot of people. But So even if you could do meditation wrong, who could you hurt with it? What could you do? What could you hurt? What harm could you do? So um, you can, like me, you can come up with all kinds of silly techniques for avoiding pain. You can have all kinds of dreary, mean thoughts drift through, drift through your head. You can have a lot of drama going on in there. But the only way that you can transform is to see that you're doing all that and to um, see all that nonsense for what it is. It's a transformative practice of thinking wrong, Seeing that you're thinking wrong and then self-correcting because we do naturally self-correct. I think that's why all this works because we have Buddha nature and Buddha nature is this incredible font of wisdom and, uh, and uh, compassion and we all have it and when we get silent it gets to come out of the hiding and it gets to uh, work slowly or quickly on us. And uh, so I guess I'm, I wanted to end with that, uh, Suzuki Roshi's story about the bad horse and, and quote a little bit. I think probably most of you know this story of, about the, the, the first horse that was really good and smart and talented and so sensitive it could always just tell what direction the rider wanted it to go or how fast he wanted it to go. It didn't need any discipline, it just knew what to do. And the second horse was pretty, pretty good. It was almost like the first horse, but it needed to see that there was a whip there. And so that kept it in line. And the third horse had to be whipped to, to do the right thing. And the fourth horse had to be whipped really hard to let it hurt and so that he could um, go as fast as he was expected to go. So uh, reading what Suzuki Roshi says, when we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it is impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. This is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of Zen. You may think that when you sit in the Zazen, you will find out whether you are one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of Zen. If you think the aim of Zen practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. 
This is not the right understanding. If you practice Zen in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the mercy of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He will have more sympathy for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice Zazen with the great mind of Buddha, you will find that the worst horse is the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly, physically, usually take more time to obtain the true way of Zen, the actual feeling of Zen, the marrow of Zen. But those who find great difficulties in practicing Zen will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse could be the best horse. And that's the end of my time. So it wasn't a real long talk, and it's time for questions or comments or personal experiences or anybody wants to tell us how they do it wrong. I'd <laughs> <laughs> uh, love to hear. Uh, well, both of you did it at the same time. Uh, Will, what, what? Uh, Did you ever uh, feel like you uh, improved with the koan practice? Uh, no, not when I was with Sasaki Roshi. Later on, I had an American Rinzai Zen teacher, and and you know, then it was easier to talk to her, and she could explain some things to me. But actually, it was never as meaningful as it was with him. I mean, I didn't really improve at it, but yeah, there were certain koans that stuck with me, and uh, I think they ended up acting the way they were supposed to act, you know, because they really worked on me. And so, I, no, I never, I never did really get really good at. With the, with the American teacher, I would feel some. Oh, I think I've got it. I've got it. And then I'd go in, and of course, it'd be 103. I'd be 180 degrees off. And I guess that's the whole point of <laughs> you just keep being off, and you're because you're still you're doing it by, by thinking about it. So, yeah. I mean, I even though I didn't know what I was doing, I I feel like it was it, it was. It, it, it was a practice that worked on me. Yeah. Yeah. Matt? Uh, I, I think I do it wrong, the, similar to one thing you said, which is you were, when you were talking about what you were doing all that time at the Rinzai School, was you were obsessed with feeling good. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think that's how I do it wrong, too, being, being obsessed with feeling good. And I, I was wondering if you could say anything about if you got over that or maybe something to help you to maybe um. get over that a little bit. No, I can't say that I really got over it because uh, I was doing it at uh, this last session that we had two weeks ago. I was <laughs> wanting to feel good, looking for the good place. You know, I wanted to find the good place. I, um, uh, so, yeah, short answer is no, I don't know that I've gotten over it. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to consume as much of my time, though. So, <laughs> and, and it, yeah. So there's no hope for me then. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> don't ask me how long I've been practicing. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hi. So I have. I have a question. 
I think the question comes from the painting I recently saw. So it, it comes from what? It's a painting like by a Mexican artist. I have it here. Can I show it to you? Okay. Yeah. Like, it's a question because. <laughs> But nobody else can see it. <laughs> so I came across this work recently. So basically, oh. she's a woman, nude, tied. It's a rope tied, right? and it's a, like sexual, sensual pleasure. It's by one of the Mexican art artists. So this is a, a, a female figure, yeah. upside she's tied down, upside all down. tied up, all bound up yeah. with some kind of straps. Yeah. And she's hanging <laughs> upside down by a by a. Yeah. So, yeah, this yeah, is so she looks pretty bound up. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I was thinking of like how would mm, can how you would can you stay here and ask your question that way everybody yeah. can hear it and maybe I can even hear it because <laughs> <laughs> hearing aids like I always do. Yeah. So I was thinking of like how would 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 one as in like put this understand the idea of pain and pleasure into this painting because when I asked my friend. She asked me, what do you see in the painting? And I, I answered, I see a pain. You see a, a pain. 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 Because mm -hmm. the moment I saw the painting, the perception was probably, yeah, women is in pain. And then I asked her, and she replied that I see a pleasure in the painting. Pleasure in the painting? Yeah. Oh, interesting. And she works on the kings and this BDSM. She's doing PhD on it. Then I started thinking about like how would Buddhist understand this painting as a work and idea of pain and pleasure derived out of it. Because there is an increasing tendency nowadays, I don't know, like some cards are coming up where like the sensual pleasure is is experienced in different ways. And even like recently I came across a news where in the, a surgeon was her, her license was cancelled. Because she live streamed the surgery she did, she performed. So the surgery was largely about like increasing the brief size and even sometimes like mod mod modifying the your butt size and removing the fat. And she live screened it. And people are more into it. Like there's an increasing demand for surgery, removing your fat and even like playing, shaping the body itself. And there is an idea of pain and pleasure into it, so I was just wondering how, what will be the Buddhist approach towards this kind of sentence? Mm. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have been thinking about it lately, and yeah, it struck me somewhere, like what is the idea of pain and pleasure into it, and what would be the Buddhist way of understanding and interpreting this? <clears throat> I don't know, that's a really hard question for me. Um, and to be honest, I was only really able to understand about half of what you said. Um, the ple pleasure and pain, or uh, sort of, are you talking? Well, I don't know. Does anybody else have any, any way to help me out on this? <laughs> yeah, I also said. Is it kind of like masochism kind of thing? I mean, like, I I have been thinking about body lately very deeply and the sensual aspect of it, like, pleasure and pain. And, yeah, because people are, some people are, and as in, like, everybody is involved into sensual pleasure, some, some, it's not, like, only sex, but, like, 
Sometimes it's also the atoms we eat, food we eat. It, it's of course like it's a sensual satisfaction that we derive to sustain our body. But I don't really think that's really a part of our practice. Yeah, it hasn't been for me, anyway. I think that our pleasure, you know, comes from a much more wholesome, wholesome place. You know. Yeah, David. Pat, I'm thinking about one of our chants, which um, I have thought about this line a lot. Which is, I don't know the exact line, but it's something like. Don't be consumed by sense appetites. Oh, uh huh. Oh, that's good. And um, I don't know. That's just a, something that seems to maybe relate to that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I mean, we're all humans. We all have senses. We all have sex appetites or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think about that line, and um, I think it's something that I, I practice with and try to understand how it plays out in my life. And it, not, not just sex, but anything. Any sense appetite, it seems to apply mm -hmm. to. Right, it does apply to any Pleasure, sense appetite. pain. Um, it seems like even meditating for the point of pain could be a sense appetite mm -hmm. that maybe you mm -hmm. wouldn't want to be consumed by. How enjoying pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is that good enough? For no, I am not seeking answers. Just that you, yeah, yeah. It's I'm just good. trying to make sense of it. Like I, I am also not for like perfect answers. I think when we think of reflect on it collectively, we get a deeper understanding of it rather than just reaching a conclusion of it. Because Buddhist way is all about cultivation and deepening the understanding of reality. So yeah. Anybody else? Yes. I think we're also instructed not to be repelled by the sense realm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe one, you know, the middle way is balance, mm -hmm. right? Not to not to stick to anything, but not to be repelled by it. And some of the early teachings sound like, you know, to contemplating the impurities of the body, contemplating death, and it's, you know, there's meditation in. Uh, charnel grounds, you know, in cemeteries where the bodies are decaying and, you know, dismembered and it's, it's, it's disgusting. You know, our, our impulse is to say, oh, how horrible. So it's supposed to help us not to stick to being attached to our bodies or the bodies of others. And sometimes it's kind of misogynistic. I bring it up because of that mm. image that you have. You know, it can, it can be aimed specifically at women as objects of sensual pleasure and desire. But the teaching in Zen is more, you know, don't be repelled by the sense realm. Mm -hmm. So equanimity yeah. and the middle way, you know. Mm -hmm. so see what's arising and don't stick to it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes, thank you, Pat. I always love your talks. <laughs> <laughs> You're so personal. Um, so, uh, Norman Fisher wrote an essay about, I think, the seven stages of monastic practice, and it starts with, like, the honeymoon stage, and then I think it goes into, like, disillusion, and there are a bunch of middle stages, kind of, like, ups and downs and, and equanimity and stuff like that, and um, one of them is the dry place, 
and it's where like you've been practicing for some time and everyone everything seems good like maybe you're kind of in a good horse place where you're like oh like this is natural like i'm just locking in to like woo embodying the buddha whatever (laughs) 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 but but there's some aliveness that's missing or you know some sort of like connection that came so naturally with like the beginning where everything you don't know anything so everything is really intimate so i was wondering if you ever went through anything similar in in your i actually did and i'm glad you asked that because i didn't know whether to mention this or not but in my quest to transcend pain i discovered maybe after sitting a couple years at these sessions that I could use my breath in a way that I think it's used to train women in childbirth, you know, where you can use your breath and really focus on your breath and you can actually get to where you don't feel pain. And I did that for a while and it was very dry and I would notice that I would feel pain for the first couple of days and then I just didn't feel any more pain. And I was very proud of this. I thought, wow, I'm really tough. You know, I, feel, I don't feel any pain. But I noticed that the, the last four or five days of the shin, session would just go by like that. It was like it was over. Mm-hmm. And, and there was after a while, it just got to be this feeling of just nothingness and dryness. It was just, I, you know, I wasn't really very present. I was so absorbed in my breath that I wasn't really there and uh, to experience what, you know, the, things to exist. So I, that went on for a little while, and I don't exactly know how I got out of it, I guess realizing that it, it just was kind of a non-experience, you know? Why even do this if I'm not even going to... And and I gradually started... Actually, I think that was kind of about the time I started sitting here, and I was starting to learn things. So I was starting to learn that, you know, with pain, uh, you, you need to just look right into it, you know? And I, so I started doing that, and... Uh, then, then every, the whole experience became much richer again. So that was my dry experience. Lasted a little while. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. I think, oh, Meredith, I think you had your hand up. No, I'm nervous to say it. No, um, what? <laughs> thank you, Pat. I loved, I loved hearing what you shared. Um, yeah, I love the story of the horses. And you said, well, everybody wants to be the good horse. And I thought immediately, well, I want to be the bad horse. Oh. And what is what is that about? And I just had kind of a mini um, session with myself while I was listening to you and talking to myself. Um, <laughs> which was, which is, on one hand, valuing discomfort, seeing like the good that can come from discomfort, uh, but also just recognizing that what is that maybe I over identify with discomfort actually maybe over the comfort anyway that's what brought that's your story brought that up for me that was because when you said everyone wants to be the good I was like I want to be the bad (laughs) Uh, uh, yeah I might be a little bit like that yeah but I just wondered if maybe that like but then I also thought like maybe you know being the one that wants to be whipped or like whipped into shape, what is that all about? Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I think I 
know a little bit of what you mean. And I think a lot of students of Sasaki Roshi were very proud that they were his students because it was so tough, because those, those uh, experiences were so rough, and I guess we felt like mountain men or something, or iron men, you know, <laughs> sort of. Uh, I, I don't know. Is that in any way like what you're talking about? Maybe yeah, not. Maybe I not. Yeah, it was maybe more a comment. Just, yeah. Maybe more what? Of, of a, a comment. Uh-huh, yeah. All right, well, thanks. Yeah, that story kind of, I think the fourth horse, there's some versions of that story where the fourth horse has to feel the whip like in the marrow of its bones. Yes, he says that, <laughs> right? yeah. 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 So it's like, it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a stupid horse, although sometimes you feel that way. It's like, what is it going to take, you know, for you to shape up? But it's that feeling of like it goes, it has to go really deep mm-hmm. before you can transform. And for some people, it's just the shadow of the whip, I think the story says. Like mm-hmm. just, you know, you see like, oh, no, don't hit me. <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get into, I'll get into place. Yeah, but that's that going to the marrow, voice. the marrow's a thing in Zen, right? You know, going all the way through. Um, yeah, so. he uses marrow twice in that, because he, uh, he talks about that marrow the fourth horse having to feel it in his marrow and then later on he said I don't know, it was something that when I read he talked about marrow again oh the actual feeling, the marrow of Zen uh, those who can sit perfectly usually take more time to obtain the true marrow of Zen they didn't get to feel it when the whip hit them yeah, it's a great story I think oh, uh, Nate uh, just to um, add to the the thing about the fourth horse, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, uh, Suzuki Roshi identified with the fourth horse. Like and he's the one telling the story, but yeah. his you know you know his teacher told him he would never mess. That's he, right. He yeah. Him, you know? Yeah. He, he's telling the story from the perspective of the fourth horse. Thank you. Yes, you're right. Yeah, he did not. His teacher was not very kind to him. Yeah, very. This, this issue of like the, the feeling that you're in the marrow, you know, in the bones, is also moving into the body and experiencing it um, through embodiment, as opposed to through some ah, cognitive uh-huh. way of seeing. Yeah, nice tie in there. Yeah, yeah. feeling it. Mm-hmm. Did Walter? I just want to mention the koan practice of that pressure, sort of pressure to have the right answer. And I'm certainly as an academic. The pressure to have the right answer? Yeah, you know, I feel this pressure. You have to have the right answer, like this burden of right answerness. And, and you thought there was a right this answer. This <laughs> you have to bow, you know, sit in front of them and have some clever answer. And I uh-huh. And I think it links back to what you said at the beginning and connects to the idea of marrow. It's not about having a right answer, it's about manifesting yeah. a kind of uh, release in relationship to the question. It's almost yeah. like a medicine. Medicines don't work if you think about them, you actually have to take them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, <laughs> that goes to the marrow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there isn't really a right answer. <laughs> But I always thought there was. <laughs> Me too. I'm still working on it. <laughs> well. Yeah, just along with that, I was just reading some uh, a record of a Chan master, and he was 
insisting that you it wasn't enough to um, basically that you had to be able to speak like when when demanded when they demanded that you say something mm-hmm. uh, you, you had, had to present to, yourself yeah but that it wasn't but that um, what needed to be said was um, I forget what how exactly you put it but it was like speaking reality like speaking directly from reality not some sort of not an answer but like yeah, yeah. not something you read in a book or yeah or not even something like a, from your marrow yeah, <laughs> yeah not even like an actual response to what is being asked like the moment that you start thinking like uh, that you're giving an answer to a question that's already wrong and mm-hmm. it needs to just like come somehow like from from the body yeah from uh-huh. reality I'm not sure yeah that's good yeah, that's a good explanation Oh, well, I guess it's time to eat tea and drink tea and eat cookies. <laughs> Thank you for being here. <laughs>